Todd, for people who aren't familiar or aren't as familiar as the Americans with the concept of halls of fame, what is a hall of fame and what is the International Tennis Hall of Fame? I think in the most literal sense, uh, a hall of fame is a place to celebrate um, those who've made impact. Um, now, not modest impact of you know a, a esteemed and substantial impact. In America, we have halls of fame um, outside of sports. We have halls of fame inside of sports. Um, we have global. We have national. We have regional. We have community, school, halls of fame. Um, so it's in the American culture, uh, I would say it's been overdone to the nth degree. Not every entity not every, needs, a, needs a hall of fame. Not everybody who has done something well deserves to be recognized in a hall of fame. We really need to, I believe, it, you know, we need to dis differentiate things like uh, lifetime service awards and establishing a perpetual recognition as being one of the greats. For sports halls of fame, primarily uh, of the you know of the national variety in in the U.S. or the international variety like ours, almost always there's a, mu a museum uh, to go along with the the hall of fame. Uh, and that not only chronicles the lives, lives and careers of the legends that are enshrined, but also tells a, a more contextualized story about the history of that sport and any number of elements within that sport. So I think that's, that's probably the easiest way to define it. Um, Is it therefore a way of officially declaring a legend? I would argue not. I would argue that there should be legends that are not uh, inducted or enshrined into halls of fame. And I, I think that's probably because of the subjective way I look at the term legend. Uh, but I look at legend as being much different than a hall of famer. For us, a, a hall of famer is also a legend. But I would look at a load of athletes who have achieved legendary status and their stories are part of the context uh, uh, or the story of the sport. However, uh, the enshrinement and the perpetuity of a Hall of Famer, I think is really quite, is really quite distinct. How much, then, is the story important? How much is fame important? Because fame is obviously in the title. So in halls of fame, or in museums, I should say, um, the word interpretation is used quite a lot. And I think that's... I, I think the stories that are told, um, you know, that's, that's the interpretation. That's the art of museum sciences, Right. I mean, it's it is like we have a curator, a manager of research and education. We have a collections manager and we'll have other um, other museum professionals on our team in, in not too long. You know, it's their challenge. Like, how are we going to do this? And that's why we, we that's why we utilize um, the services of historians like you and John Barrett and 
Steve Flink, Joel Drucker, and, and others who help us interpret the history of the sport because because your recollection of what happened in the 2001 uh, championships at Wimbledon is going to be different than mine. And the results are the exact same, right? Neither one of us can change the results, but we can tell a different story. So is the Hall of Fame, which clearly is based around champions, as much as anything a way of getting the champions as a an easy way of telling the story of the evolution of tennis? I think you're on point. Um, I would just say it a, a touch differently from the standpoint of, at least here, we try to tell the history of the sport uh, through the lives and careers of the Hall of Famers. And at times, that augments the evolution, uh, the story of the evolution of the sport. And at times... The evolution of the sport can indicate the effect on who the Hall of Famers were. Like, I asked a question of Leighton today in the press conference. You know, you were probably one of the last guys to use all gut at, at a successful level. Well, yeah. So who created the who created the polyester string? And who literally transformed Leighton's career? Because I, I would argue that his reign at the top of the game would have sustained much longer had some of the conditions not been changed upon, at his peak. At his peak. More, more polyester, better agronomy uh, for the grass courts, and perhaps some tweaks of the ball. Like, literally, it's a confluence of that had, he had no control over that I would say adversely affected his uh, success. That may well be true, but the guy who invented the polyester string that may have changed the game, you talked earlier about impact. Yeah. That person, whoever he or she is, has had impact, and yet they're not going to get into the Hall of Fame. We don't even know who they are most of the time. So I would argue that that's not necessarily true. Um, we have Ted Tinling as an inductee into the Hall of Fame. Well, I mean, you know, Ted to my understanding, didn't play the game that well. But he informed a transformation of the fashion industry on the tennis court that probably informed some evolution even outside of that. Uh, Howard Head is not a Hall of Famer. However, considering what he has done in our sport, yeah. Well, in terms of transforming from wood to, to modern composite rackets. And, and larger rackets. And um, Kubler, who created the wide, uh, essentially the wide body racket. Now that's you know, sort of evolved in and then evolved out of the sport. But like, there's a lot of impact out there. And some of those would, if you put them in the context of players and legends and hall of famers perhaps howard head is a legend of the game and ted tinling is a hall of famer and there is a subjective element right i mean embedded in all of that how do you compare a fashion designer and a uh, and a racket manufacturing inventor like there's no there's no way to compare so that's the subjective Sure, that's the impact as well, isn't it? Which you talked yeah. about earlier. Um, you have a con 
a contributors section. Most of the people that become Hall of Famers are players, ex-players. They have to be, what, five years out? Correct. But you can only have a contributor inducted every three years? Every four years. Every four years. So, actually, the contributors to tennis are way, way behind the players in terms of what counts as a Hall of Famer. So... At one, um, not that long ago, we would induct or we would, um, contributors would be eligible to be inducted into that category on an annual basis. Um, we got, I, I think it's also a broadly held position that Halls of Fame should at least be primarily about, about the players. Um, I think most of us also believe that it's appropriate to recognize uh, those who've had different impact on on the sport. Um, there are some who have a much more hardcore view of it and, and, and believe that a Hall of Fame should only be uh, for the players. So the reason we amended our policies and procedures to restrict contributors to every four years, uh, a maximum of two uh, inductees, was because we were getting to where it was not quite one for one, but it wasn't far from it. And um, that does not sit well. I mean, the Hall of Fame, um, the entity, the International Tennis Hall of Fame, does not vote. It's just the, it's the governor of the, of the process. And then the interpreters of the, of the story. And the Hall of Fame, I, I will state, I, I try to stay very agnostic in all of this, but the Hall of Fame definitely was uncomfortable with the notion of approaching a one-for-one one ratio and made those um, uh, amendments accordingly. Uh, I can't tell you what the data is over the last uh, five years or six years now, but it's not oblong. We're not inducting a lot of players. We're not inducting a lot of contributors and we're not inducting a lot of wheelchair players because of market impact or market market effect from the standpoint of players and from a policy standpoint for wheelchair players and um, uh, and contributors so I, I actually I think the data will show that we're probably appropriate um, now that doesn't mean that I, my personal opinion, believes that every four years is right. I think there are there are improvements and we'll continue to review and, and um, uh, periodically and then revise when appropriate. And you've got a strange few years coming up now because in the last few years, almost all the Grand Slam men's singles titles have been won by five men. And so once they finish, there'll be shoe-ins for the Hall of Fame. And yet you won't have many others. From a singles perspective, that's uh, that's probably right. And if we look at the superficial, um, there's two data points that most, um, I believe, most knowledgeable tennis fans and participants look at. And that uh, those two data points are uh, number of Grand Slams won and um, highest ranking or number of weeks at world number one or, or what have you. It's uh, certainly the two data points that I would look at in analysis of my own career as being the most important. It would certainly be, I think, at the higher 
a higher level of importance to most everybody. Um, but as the sport evolves, I think we also have to consider uniqueness. I think we have to consider many more data points than simply just did you were you the best in those two weeks and were you the best among the competition that you had um because sometimes the competition might be different we don't we can't evaluate that uh generation to generation maybe even year to year um nadal's not the same player every year um so there's some years if you're ranked ahead of nadal that's more impressive than others um I love to talk amongst friends about David Ferrer. My belief is, is, as the sport and the tours continue to evolve, we should be looking more and more deeply at more data points. Uh, David Ferrer's win-loss percentage is out of this world. David Ferrer's ranking was in the top four in the world, you know, a Grand Slam final. That's good career and you know you won a number of other tournaments like oh that's great that's a good career if you look at the fact that Ferrer was in the top five maybe even higher than that for what seemed to be six years straight um, along with Federer Nadal Djokovic and Murray in and out of there as well how can you not look and say that's just an out-of-this-world level of sustained excellence and achievement. I don't think the book cover tells anything about who David Ferrer was as a tennis player. So you're looking at different ways of evaluating players than just Grand Slam titles won? I would, if I were a voter, um, and not just the administrator of the process and, and, and the policies and procedures. I would be asking myself the questions of well wait a second like all right so who did he lose to in the finals of the french open who did he beat in the finals of the big tournaments that he won uh what was his win-loss record just generally how many years was he in the top 10 how many years was he in the top five um i, I think you could get to those different data points and then you start really looking at the whole or you know the body of work as opposed to just parts of uh, of it um you know the, the assessment at the end of the day might be might very well be yeah he's still a legend not a hall of famer but you know i think there's a first for everything and at some point in time might there not be a first person who is inducted into the Hall of Fame, who's never been world number one, who's never won a Grand Slam. And is that is that okay? I would argue that he was one of the three or four best players of the 2000s. Just my argument about data points. And uh, so Nadal, right now, as we speak, Nadal 22, Novak 21, Federer 20. Okay. Let's just call them all equal. I mean, at, at a certain point in time, we're, we're splitting hairs when you're getting into the... A lot of people would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so here we have three relatively concurrent careers with almost equal achievement. If you go back to the 90s, Pete Sampras was number one in the world for six straight years. He won 14 majors. The next most prolific 
champion of that era was Andre Agassi, and he won eight. You go back into the 60s, Laver won the Grand Slam in 62, won the Grand Slam in 69, had six years without being able to play majors, uh, and he won uh, 12, uh, I think 12 uh, Grand Slams in total. Emerson won 13. In what span of time, at, with how many opportunities were, were, were those won? I could argue that Pete Sampras, doubling almost, the next most prolific champion of the day, you know, considering the technology, considering the courts, considering the structure of the tour, considering 16 seeds at Grand Slams as opposed to 32 seeds, you can start to consider all of that. Might it be possible to still look at Sampras in a favorable light against Nadal, uh, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic? So it's different forms of analysis, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's there is the absolute, which my parents would be mortified that I'm looking at it at the relative level because I, I think we. My family all believes it is a world of absolutes. There's a lot of gray, but when it gets to a certain point in time, you're not judging yourself against somebody. You're judging yourself against yourself. Am I doing the very best that I can? Um, We're looking at the absolutes, and that's 63 Grand Slam titles across three individuals. If we're looking at it, the relative... Sampras almost twice as uh, accomplished as Agassi. But then you can go around in circles because you can say that Andy Murray, um, if he hadn't been competing with Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, he'd probably be up to 10, 12, possibly 14 Grand Slam titles as well. It's an argument and therefore, you know, are we getting too hung up on numbers? You talk a lot about data. Maybe we should just go on the intangibles. How far did, how much cut through did they have, which you could never measure? No, and that's the question that you hinted at earlier with fame. Um, you know, and achievement uh, brings more fame than just about anything. And um, so it, what, I'm, what I'm focused on is just, um, one, I, I, I totally disregard discussion about um, greatest of all time. There's just no, um, there's just no way to, there's no way to compare um, I think the great champions of the game would have figured out how to be successful, no matter when they were uh, when they were entering into the the sport. The champions come from here in my head, from here in my heart, and from here on my legs. And then, um, you know, the rest is left to some chance. And who votes for the inductees of the International Tennis Hall of Fame? So we have. Uh, we have a committee of up to 23 individuals who um, are a composite of Hall of Famers, historians, members of the media, uh, administrators in the game, uh, and any other, you know, any other uh, individuals that might be of, uh, of pronounced aptitude to be able to discern achievement. Uh, and then that committee uh, creates the ballot. And then passes the ballot out to a voting population uh, of very similar composition of that uh, of those 23. But that uh, the voting population population 
is closer to about 175 individuals, very diverse from a global um, standpoint. And then, but they all those those 170, they all have to have some sort of proven knowledge of tennis. Oh, they're they're very well. Um, we actually have a committee that assesses whether individuals are the right individuals to invite to be part of the process. Um, it's difficult. Then you add into the into that mix that Halls of Fame are their origin are an American concept, and we're in our. Uh, the concept is very mature in in the U.S. and it's in its infancy to adolescence in in many other regions of the world so i think that it's it's complicated how does somebody go from being a member of a great american generation twice a grand slam runner-up to being chief executive officer of the international tennis hall of fame and are you surprised that having been a top player in the 90s this is where you are now well it's certainly not what i would have imagined uh, my first ever ATP tournament was here in in Newport I played as an amateur and qualified and won my first round and I tell the story all the time that I walked past my future home on my way to the Newport hospital to be diagnosed with mononucleosis and I and I withdrew from the tournament um, and that was like at three o'clock in the morning I could I could I could no longer breathe um, when I went to the hospital I never in my wildest imagination would have imagined here. If you would have told my sister, who always wanted to be a museum docent, that her dumb jock brother was going to be working in a museum and she was not, uh, that would have gotten a few laughs as well. I guess, you know, in answer to your actual question, I am not surprised I refer to myself as a as a servant to the game. I'm and I I I, I choose that word very intentionally because I am serving the sport that has given me so much. And with that comes great joy. Um it's come with great stress, especially during the pandemic. It's come with um, great challenge. It's not an easy organization to lead. It's um, a bizarre place to have a uh, a, a Hall of Fame. Uh, hard to get to. It's with an interna- international mandate. Um, it's really difficult to get to Newport, Rhode Island. Easy by sailing boat. Um, uh, so all of that, and I think probably the only thing that would surprise me if I were to look back several years ago, is how much I don't feel like a former player anymore. Um, I do feel like an or- a former player, but I feel um, I feel much more like an executive uh, in our sport and in some ways in an arts and culture space than I feel like the dumb jock who used to chase tennis balls around in white shorts. Um, so... For me, looking at it through that lens also helps from the standpoint of being gratified and stimulated with personal and professional growth. Yet, you know, when I scratch my head and say, what do I want to do when I grow up? I, you know, I, I think about coaching again. I think about um, teaching and, you know, being more connected to the sport from, a, you know, sort of... Um, 
hand-to-hand combat uh, side of things, like having a racket in my hand and feeling the tennis ball and doing still what I do best. I mean, like, if you ask me to do anything in in this world other than simple mathematics, I probably hit a tennis ball better than I do anything. And finally, just a word about the museum here. We talk about the Hall of Fame, but for anyone interested in tennis who has the chance to get to Newport, Rhode Island, it's a wonderful museum, isn't it? It fills in all sorts of blanks about the sport of tennis. It fills in more blanks than I thought there could possibly have. Um, And considering the uniqueness of the property, we've got more than seven acres worth of a museum experience. Our grounds are a museum experience. Uh, We have a court tennis or real tennis court, uh, which is like a living museum. We have a historical theater from 1880 that the... You know the lifestyles of the rich and famous used to dance at um, in the early nineteen uh, 1900s and uh, and late eighteen hundreds, but the museum, the museum proper, actually um, was rebuilt in two thousand and fifteen and tells both a linear story of this of the sport or a chronologically linear uh, story of the sport, but then sort of tangentializes within each of those eras to give you know sort of almost a a cross-section look at um, the lives and careers of the Hall of Famers the evolution of the sport um, from far before tennis far before real tennis and does it in an artful in an artful yet reverent and yet now technologically interactive way um so i'm horribly proud of the work that our team has done to do that and i really have had little to no responsibility in how that story is told but boy we're in a we're in a spectacular place to be able to to really tell somebody who has got a passion for this uh, for this sport what it is Todd Martin, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Chris.